Recently, I had a chance to chat with Nick Russo, a former communications officer in the United States Marine Corps and the author of a recently published Lean Pub book. We talked about some of the duties and the extraordinary challenges a comms officer has on deployment and about the interesting circumstances around the publication of his book, which at nearly 3,000 pages and a million words is a highly comprehensive and specialized guide for achieving special networking service provider certification. I'd just like to mention before we get started that Nick Russo's comments in the podcast are his and not those of his employer, Cisco. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Nicholas Rousseau. Nick is based in the state of Maryland in the United States and holds a Bachelor's of Science in Computer Science and a minor in International Relations from the Rochester Institute of Technology. Nick is a former comm officer in the Marine Corps, and recently he was one of the first people to pass the Cisco Certified Internetwork Expert, or CCIE, Service Provider Version 4 Lab Examination. Nick is the author of the LeanPub book, CCIE Service Provider Version 4, Written in Lab Exam Comprehensive Guide. His book is about achieving certification in the CCIE service provider track, which has recently been updated by Cisco to reflect changes in standards, techniques, and procedures made by networking vendors. The book is meant not only for people interested in passing the related written lab and lab exams, but also for enterprise architects and other network professionals interested in the core routing concepts for any network. In this interview, we're going to talk about Nick's career, his professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk about his experience writing the book and self-publishing on LeanPub. So thank you, Nick, for being on the Lean Pub podcast. Uh, thanks, Len. I'm happy to be here. Um, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could tell me how you first became interested in computer science and eventually made your way to the Marine Corps and on to Cisco. Yeah, sure. So uh, in high school, it was interesting. Um, they had a relatively new computer science program when I started high school in the year 2000. And uh, they had a bunch of new computers and I didn't really know what computer science was, but I knew I liked computers as a kid. So I figured, okay, well, I'll go check this out. And then I, I quickly found out that it, it wasn't just, you know, putting cards in computers and playing games. It was about learning how to command computers to do things and to solve real-life problems. And I immediately saw value in that uh, as a high school student and uh, managed to do those courses for all four years of high school. That kind of led me into uh, the college degree of computer science when I went to RIT to pursue that career. Kind of along the way... Uh, in between college, or excuse me, in between high school and college, um, I joined the Marine Corps and the Reserves, m- partially, um, mostly for the adventure of it. I-, I didn't really have a great reason at the time, but it's something I knew I wanted to do. So I did the Reserves while I was in college studying computer science. Uh, while in the Reserves, uh, interestingly enough, I had my job had nothing to do with communications at the time. I was uh, simply an infantryman, like the bazooka guy, basically, um, which was a fun job, but not something you really want to take uh, too far. And uh, once I got done with college, I thought about that and said, you know, I'm going in the Marine Corps. I'm getting uh, commissioned as an officer. Um, when I went to training, at that point, I kind of got to decide which way do I want to go. Do I want to continue to be an infantryman or do I want to actually put my computer science skills at least to somewhat of a use and go into telecommunications? So I decided to go that route. Um, on, a, on my second deployment um, to Afghanistan, which was in 2011, I got really interested in networking. Um, and this was mostly the result of one of my fellow Marines. His name was Master Gunnery Sergeant John Robertson, who's one of my best friends, one of the most influential and smartest guys I've ever worked with. Um, he could he could make anything work out of nothing. Um, you know, you see a lot of these stories. Uh, it's a little bit kind of a different innovation, if you will. You know, a lot of cool stuff out of Silicon Valley these days, people solving a lot of real world problems with new ideas. You know, th- th- this was the kind of... Uh, um, 
you know, guy stuck on an island innovation where I have a nail and a shoestring and I need to communicate 20 miles. It was that kind of stuff. And I really enjoyed that. And I, I could see a lot of the ingenuity that came from the tactical side of communications. But then I became really interested in the large scale routing, switching and service provider technologies that were a little bit related to what we were doing in the tactical space. Uh, when I left the Marine Corps, I worked for a company called Harris RF Communications in Rochester. They had a very large uh, tactical radio program, networking tactical radio. So it actually worked really well. Uh, my experience with radios in the military, plus a little bit of my network knowledge, it was a good kind of bridging uh, bridging that gap where I could connect radios to a network and, and extend my IP connectivity over a, a tactical radio net. So a guy driving around in a truck could access uh, different network resources. Kind of moved on past that a couple of years later. Ultimately, went through a couple other jobs, and uh, now I work for uh, Cisco as a network consulting engineer, doing a lot of uh, large scale routing designs and support for the tactical army. Um, as well as other Army garrison posts. Great. That's a, that's a really great, uh, great story. Um, I wanted to ask you, I think um, most of the people who listen to the Lean Pub podcast, I think, are still currently um, computer programmers. And I think to a lot of them, the kind of work you described as a comm officer on deployment um, is something they might like to hear a little bit more about. Can you give me an example of what a typical day might have been and a typical task that you might be assigned to do would be? Sure. Um, you know, what's interesting about it is, you know, computer science and networking, they're, they're different in many ways, but similar in others. You know, the thing about computer science is you're trying to take a machine that has no brains and give it brains so that it can do something, solve some problem, you know, generate revenue for a company or even as something like, hey, sort, the, sort this list of items, you know, using a, some kind of algorithm, you know. Um, in, in the Marine Corps doing the communication stuff, it was more of a, you know, we have a whole bunch of items which are done. You know, these radios have software on them. These routers have software on them. So the software engineering component is, isn't really in play. However, the thing, the system is integration component and the networking piece was, was really the, the major challenge there. And as you can imagine, when you're in kind of a combat zone, your resources are limited, you're, 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 you know, in addition to human factors like stress and personnel shortages, um, you know, you're, you're asked to do things like, hey, we need to communicate to these new sites. We get these new outposts. These guys need connectivity. That's an important task, and I don't have the resources either in people or equipment to do that. So then you start to be creative with, um, you know, that tactical radio thing I was talking about, like Harris, for example. They had something, hey, we can drop these small little man pack size radios out there and extend IP connectivity to these guys because we don't have a giant truck that we can send out there for satellite communications. So things like that I think were really interesting. And, of course, you can't just – drop the radio in some guy's lap and say, okay, turn it on. It's like, that's not going to work. Um, there's a, there's a whole planning detail that goes into that, both from a, a spectrum perspective, making sure that you're allowed to use the frequencies of that radio, as well as the configuration of the network side of it. So doing that, I would say, you know, on a, on an interesting day where we got to do something like set up a new site or deploy some new services to some outpost, we would typically find ourselves trying to solve those kinds of problems. Um, ultimately, you know, you think about it from a business perspective, the, the business value is, hey, we're enabling a new site, which is at the edge of our perimeter, ultimately providing security for the rest of the unit. I imagine um, that uh, setting up a network so that people can communicate with their families back home uh, must be a really important part of the job now as well. Yeah, that was um, that was another interesting part of the job because typically in a tactical network, when you're when you're doing these networking things and enabling services for different units, you're typically focused number one on the classified network because that's where you that's where you exchange all your fire missions and you do that's where you fight your battles. After that comes the unclassified tactical network where you're going to do things like um, you know do logistical coordination and things that aren't classified but still protected. And then the last and lowest priority, of course, is the morale network. And you know in the 
we were fortunate enough to actually have a pretty decent morale network, mostly because, you know, the first two priorities were pretty solid. So we had a, a little bit of a, a morale station, if you will. People would come by the main fob maybe on a monthly or every couple months basis, and we had a couple computers set up in the corner where people could, it's basically an internet cafe for free. People show up, they hop on, they check email, they do a video call, and then they kind of go about their, uh, go about the next couple of weeks being without it. So that was a pretty good thing to have as well. Um, for obviously for morale purposes and also because, you know, there's, it's another network to maintain. So then you start to get in this habit of, I have multiple different security enclaves. I need to be able to maintain all those different things. You mentioned, um, FOB, which I, uh, understand is forward operating base. Yeah, um, that's right. And, yep. and would you, um, actually go yourself to FOBs? I did a little bit of that. Um, you know, in my role as a communications officer, um, I was a little bit tethered by some of the uh, the leadership, you know, because they're like, hey, we need you. We, you're the belly button for us. You know, when we need communications, we come and poke you. So it was oftentimes a lot of my subordinate leadership. Again, uh, John Robertson was, was one of the instrumental people and, and who he personally did a lot of that himself um, and also uh, helped, helped me delegate that to some subordinate uh, leadership within my unit that I was uh, that I was in charge of. But what's interesting is you know, the chances that I did get to go out there was kind of a real eye-opener because sometimes when you're sitting behind a desk and you're like, hey, you know, you guys go out and set the system up and it needs to be up by tomorrow. And when it's not up by tomorrow, you start to get upset. You're like, oh, come on. I needed that up. To, you know, I needed that up now. And then you go out there and do it yourself. It's like, oh, that actually wasn't so easy. Start to gain that. That's where I started to gain the appreciation for networking. It's like, you know, I sit here and I think this stuff is easier than it really is. Because I'm looking at a diagram with some routers and switches and I just have to draw a line and my job is done. You know, and then I realize it's ne it's never like that. Yeah, it's really um, it's really fascinating. I was thinking as I was sort of going over your book about how um, uh, you know, the routing and switching part of computing, and I, I imagine you might take this might kind of annoy you at some point, but it's one of those things that everybody who uses computers and communications devices just takes for granted is going to work. It's the kind of black box underneath it all. Um, and I was wondering if you were to explain, say, to someone non-technical what it is that you that you do um just briefly how would you and and what the importance is of the technology that you work on and now now at Cisco I guess how would you sure that? so my my job here at Cisco it's similar to what we kind of already do so you can kind of think about my old role role when I was in the Marine Corps I was a communications officer in an infantry battalion I supported communications for that battalion you know actually was the operations guy in a way of hey um the Marine Corps fielded me all this equipment. I, you know, they gave me 10 of these comm vehicles, we'll say, and I've got to supply reachability to 12 units. You know, okay, that math doesn't work out so easily. So then it's up to you to kind of think of ways to solve that problem uniquely. The role I'm in now is I work to support one of the program offices that actually builds those trucks. Um, so I support them in the large scale networking because from their view, they're fielding hundreds and thousands of these trucks across the entire U.S. Army. So you can imagine the network that uh, it takes and that it's time and the resources it takes to maintain, plan, operate a network like that is pretty substantial. So I work on that quite a bit to help them determine what kind of architecture we want to done. How can we make this scale? How can we make it manageable? And then the other important thing, the people running this network are, are soldiers um, and nothing on them. They're extremely courageous, smart, tough guys and, and girls. But a lot of them just are they're not professional engineers a lot of times. So we always have to consider this has to be real easy, kind of like, you know, smartphones and all these new smart devices we have. Anyone can use them. But the tech inside of that thing is just overwhelmingly awesome, I think. It's crazy. It's complicated. But it's awesome. And, and somebody had the, the brilliance to take all that tech and put such a simple interface on it and make it resilient. And that's one of the biggest challenges that we have in tactical. Yeah, um, I was wondering on the subject of technology. What are some? What would some of the recent developments be 
um, that have uh, had to be incorporated into your into your engineering processes? Yeah, so I think some of the recent developments. I mean, we 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 tried to always keep a thumb on a lot of the recent developments that happen within. The industry. So, for example, you hear terms like you know SD WAN and, and software defined networking and, and just general terms like that. You know, cloud computing, and we try to think about how can we how, how can we at a minimum think through how we would want to deploy these things in a tactical environment. Um, I think there's a lot of promise for those technologies, um, specifically things like SD WAN, where I might have uh, slow satellite links and fast line of sight links. Of course, all these things are built on the fly and change very constantly. So, some kind of intelligent system that can route traffic based on different link metrics and other user-defined criteria would be extremely important. So we've continued to keep a pulse on things like that. Um, the other thing that's always fun in, in a government environment is, you know, appropriating money to, to buy these things, feel them, test them. That cycle can sometimes be very long. And you think about small startups, they can tip, you know, a, a, a smaller company of a few guys, they can make a couple of decisions and change the direction of their company incredibly over the course of a few hours where a bigger ship is always harder to turn. Um on the subject of technology, drones and UAVs are obviously on the top of many people's minds who read tech news. Um, and I was wondering if um, that's part of the communications infrastructure that you've worked on. It is a little bit. Um, we've talked about having kind of like an aerial tier in a sense. So you can kind of imagine I got a bunch of trucks on the ground and maybe those trucks can't see one another. But SATCOM bandwidth can be very expensive and sometimes prohibitive. So if I can have some kind of aerial drone to serve as almost a retransmission or a relay point, we've considered things like that as well. Um, but those things are continuously on our radar because deploying capabilities like that, both obviously from a uh, surveillance perspective um, for, you know, Intel feeds, um, which has been around for a long time, but also for radio retransmission systems. Those are highly relevant for tactical. Great. Um, on the subject of your book, um, as I understand it, um, at the time you passed this latest certification, you were one of only 10 people or so in the world to have done so. Um, and uh, well, you can correct me if that's wrong. And I, I just wanted to ask what some of the changes are that are reflected in the latest version that required a new certification test. Yeah, so that that number I think is a, is kind of a, a scientific guess, a wild guess based on uh, what I've talked to a couple other people in the group. Um, long story short, is every couple of years, uh, most vendors what they'll do is when they offer a certification test, you know, they'll come up with okay, we got all these new features that are relevant in industry. We want to make sure that we certify people on these topics. But then after three, four, five years, those things start to lose their. Some of those things may lose their shelf life. They may not be relevant. So vendors try to do a good job and, and cycle those things out. The CCI service provider version 3 to version 4, at least in my opinion, had a relatively sizable number of things that were added and only a small number of things that were removed. Um, so ultimately, we, what you end up with is a very, very large topic domain. And that's what kind of drove me to, uh, to write the book. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is a test like this... Um, there's training materials out there, you know, there's documentation, there's a lot of information, there's people to talk to, but a lot of times what's really hard to find is a consolidated set of labs and technical explanations to a sufficient level of depth that would allow you to succeed in passing the exam. And there are companies uh, that exist out there, very good ones in fact, that base almost their entire business model on the CCIE and passing those exams and they'll have professional instructors that do videos, they build labs, they have workbooks, they have training sessions. It's a, it's a massive I wouldn't say massive, but it's a sizable industry. Um, you know, obviously, my book is uh, it doesn't add you know the human element per se. I'm not doing boot camps and stuff like that, but I do cover all the topics in the blueprint. And I feel like for a lot of people who are chasing this exam, um, a lot of people have contacted me looking for materials. And, and of course, now that I'm finally able to offer something, 
I think that there's a lot of interest in it, but something that I think just in general, uh, it's kind of a human thing is, hey, I really want to achieve this thing, but I, I don't have guidance. I don't have a mentor. I don't have information. I just don't know what to do. So people typically do one of two things or one of three things really. Either they, number one, they wait for it. They wait for someone to do it, um, which is fine. And, you know, those are ba basically all those people are my customers now. And I'm more than happy to support them now that they have my, now they have our workbook. They waited a couple months. They got something. Um, the other group of people are people who just quit. You know, and that's, that's totally understandable. Um, you know, I, I don't have materials out there. I know I'm not going to succeed. Maybe they'll try to go for a different task. Maybe they'll go back to college instead. Maybe they'll spend that time with their family instead of studying. And then the third type, it, I think, would be me, is the guy who goes and writes his own book on it in lieu of not having any other materials. And that, that obviously takes a tremendous amount of work. I know you see the page count's almost 3,000 pages. There's almost a million words in this book. Uh, very, very sizable. Took me about seven months, uh, you know, and a thousand hours of continuous dedication to work through, document these technologies, and verify everything uh, several times so that I had a very clear understanding of what was in it. Because my logic is if I'm going to try to market this to my customers, I want to ensure that I'm providing them a quality workbook that's going to accurately reflect the topics on the blueprint. Um, as well as all the ins and outs of, you know, the, kind of the weirdness because, of course, when you deploy technology, it never works the way you think it's going to work. So you always want to have that explanation of, you know, how you're doing things and especially why you're doing things. You mentioned in a blog post um, that you actually failed the first time you took the test. Um, and you talk about, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you learned from that experience and help you pass the next time. Yeah, you know that's the interesting thing about these uh, these exams. I think it's uh, I think they say the second attempt is common because it definitely is. Um, I took a I took a, a, another CCIE in 2014, the routing and switching test, which I also failed once. I passed that on my second try, like this one. And taking it the first time, I think was, you know, I went in there highly confident. My book was already done, um, so I had already written the whole book. I knew everything in the book. I was at the top of my game. I walked in. I, I uh, you know I got through the first couple sections pretty well and. Some things later on in the test I found extremely difficult. I was pressed on time. I was tired. I was hungry. You know, all those, all those human elements start to eat away at you as you're trying to accomplish this very difficult task in a very limited amount of time. Um, and at that time, the time I first took the test, I didn't know a single soul. Uh, I'm sure there were some in the world, but I didn't know a single person that had passed the test. Um, by the time I passed it the second time, I knew about two or three people, so it was kind of heating up a little bit. And I'm sure to date there might be 20 or 30, but uh, it's still a very, uh, a relatively small number. Um, and I think the reason for that small number, it's not so much because of the, the impossibility or the difficulty of the test. Again, I think it comes back to people just don't have the information that they need to pass it. And I'm trying to help break that so I can bring some more uh, knowledge to people and ultimately help raise the popularity of people achieving this exam. Because I know there's a lot of people who use these technologies, uh, use similar technologies in their everyday work. People who work for large service providers, um, you know, the, the large tier one carriers in the States, like you think of Sprint and CenturyLink and AT&T, these guys have massive, massive carrier networks. And a lot of the technologies in this book um, are very, very specific to that environment and also for large enterprises as well. And in my opinion, that, you know, having a mastery of those technologies is how you build large scale uh, networks that, that are scalable and efficient. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I know, noted that you talk in the book, and I think in the introduction here, I, I mentioned it as well, that you say that you know, the book is obviously useful not only for people who are taking this specific test, but for people who um, you know, are, are, want to be experts or are experts in their field and just need information about this you know, somewhat undocumented uh, subject. Um, one, one detail I liked from your blog post was um, you mentioned uh, it's good to read, and I think this applies not only to the exam that the book is about, but you talk about how it's important to read the entire exam, the, all the questions 
at the start. Um, and is that, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Is that so you can prioritize questions and how would you go about prioritizing them if that's the reason? Yeah, that's a great question. And the, and the thing that's interesting about these tests is a lot of people will say this, and I tend to agree with it, is a lot of this, a lot of getting through that exam is the strategy and how you go about it. Because, you know, every, you know, like I said, I took my first CCI, I failed it the first time, but I knew all the technology. I, I was extremely confident. Same thing when I failed the, the service provider test the first time. I knew all the technology. You know, the book was done. I was extremely fast on the command line. I knew what I was doing. But it was a strategy thing that I didn't have nailed down. And the thing about the strategy is, you know, you're, you're asked to design a network either from scratch or you have some kind of a brownfield deployment. Like, for example, you have a network that already exists and you're asked to make significant changes to it in an extremely short amount of time. So you have to look at it and say, what does the network look like now? What are all the things they're asking me to do? And how can I put these tasks in the proper order? So it's both a prioritization thing, like how can I get the most points as fast as possible? But it's also a matter of, which tasks make sense to do in which order? Because sometimes what you might end up with is in the beginning, they have you do um, some basic routing tasks. And then in the middle of it, they have you do a bunch of kind of uh, value-added service stuff, maybe like IP multicast or quality of service or MPLS traffic engineering. And those things are, those things are important. Got to do them to get the points. But they might have you come back and do some routing stuff later in the test when it would have made more sense to do that up front. So you kind of have to think about what is the overall objective and what does the network need to look like when I walk out of this room today? And that's what I need to focus on from the very beginning. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why you chose to self-publish the book and why you chose LeanPub as your platform. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, the self-publishing thing, it, it's I'll, I'll keep this brief just uh, in the interest of uh, not boring everyone, but I wrote this book and I finished it a couple days before I joined Cisco. And because I did that, I, I kind of talked to my company and we worked it out and said, hey, you know, I, I wrote this book before I came here, I, but now I work here and I'm trying to publish it. Typically, when you work for a company, the, the, what you develop at that company is property of that company. So we, we went through kind of a, a little bit of a thing there. Um, everything was great. They were extremely cooperative. It just took a little bit of time to get through the approval process. And then at that point, I was like, well, it's, it's June. I wrote this book in January, um, and there are people failing this test around the world. And you know, the test was uh, introduced in 2015, and I figured the test has about three more years of shelf life on it. If I spend another six months working with a professional editor, it's going to cost me a lot of time and a lot of money. And, you know, quite frankly, you know, a book with a million words, it's going to have some grammatical errors. It's going to have some spelling errors, but it's a technical book and all the content is accurate. I think that's what's really going to matter for, for my customers and, and, you know, those who have put their testimonials up on the website will, will certainly agree that the content is certainly there. And I figured I would rather push this out now get it published quickly on a, on a place that I think is reputable and people are familiar with. Um, and especially LeanPub, I think a lot of the information, you know, I look at a lot of the books on LeanPub, they're written by people who are coming up with new ideas about software and, and APIs and, and things like that. And it seemed like a very, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, a very tech-friendly environment where I could post something that I kind of came up with and it would get uh, viewed by people with similar views and people who would potentially be interested in it, even if they've never heard of it before. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for that, and for and for choosing LeanPub. Um, you know, your your case is one of the reasons we we built LeanPub was so that people who are particularly say on the cutting edge of something and an expert in something who've made something that a has a kind of time sensitivity to it, um, also b is something that's so useful to the people who need it 
that the occasional grammatical error or you know lack of formatting finesse is actually irrelevant to them. Um, and also, and this is actually an example I've often used um, uh, just sort of in general, but um, you know, if you approach a publisher and say, there are a thousand people in the world who are expert enough to understand my content um, or, or to be interested in it in the first place, you're pretty unlikely to get a publisher unless you know, you're an academic or you're going to an academic press or something like that. Um, but in your case, you, know, you can publish a book and, and, uh, and, that, and provide a lot of value to your customers, but also get something back yourself. Um, and you know, because we pay a 90% royalty, then it can, it can be worth it, even if you're, in the end you don't reach a great number of readers. Um, I had a question, actually. Your, your book is really interesting um, in, uh, in a very specific way because, as you say, it's nearly 3,000 pages, um, nearly a million words. Um, and so you've set the minimum price at $200 and the suggested price at $300. Um, and I just want to explain to everyone listening, one of the reasons this is so interesting is that LeanPub books have no digital rights management or DRM on them, um, which means you can make as many copies of them as you want and distribute them. And you can also get a refund with just a couple of clicks, no questions asked. Um, and uh, your book so far, I think, has um, you know one return or something like that. Um, uh, and I was just wondering how you... So people are voluntarily paying, obviously, is, is my point. And I was wondering... Um, how did you decide to set the price, the minimum price, to two hundred dollars? Was there, uh, in, was it based on instinct or some research? Yeah. So the thing that's interesting is I, I checked a couple competitors out there, and just to be clear, um, you know, I looked at some of the competitors who were offering workbooks, and you know, despite their, despite some of those other workbooks being much much shorter, like on the order of six to eight hundred pages, and, and being relatively incomplete, those books cost about two hundred dollars. So I figured, you know. To, for my book to be a little bit more expensive, that's appropriate. But for them to be the same price, there's no contest. At least that's the message that I'm trying to put out there. You know, you can buy a 3,000-page book that's known to be complete for price X, or you can buy another book that is a quarter the length for the same price. You know, and you can kind of choose based on that. Um, the $300 price was kind of my initial idea for, it, but I figured, you know, if I'm going to launch this book, at least for me personally, I think. Getting the exposure as an expert in this field, and you know, this is my first book that I've ever published. So, being able to to do that and to call myself a professional writer with a publication and to put it out there, in my eyes, was more important than making that extra fifty percent on the royalties uh, by selling it for hundred bucks more. And you know, I think what's interesting is I, I didn't really expect to see a whole lot of people voluntarily paying more, but there actually have been several, which is which is very cool. Um, people, I think, that have said, "Hey, this this book is three thousand pages." And if I spend 300 bucks, that's 10 cents a page. And you can imagine the amount of technical detail you're getting for just that one 10 cents. You're getting a whole page worth of extremely detailed stuff and explanations. Um, entire topics on here might, might be you know, anywhere from 10 to 100 pages. So for a dollar to $10, you're getting an entire topic that describes a technology that may not be documented sufficiently in any other uh, study guide. You mentioned in an email the other day um, that your book is already up on torrent sites. And I mean, obviously... I mean, every author loves their books and puts a lot of work into them, but yours in particular um, is, is special in that regard. And um, given that you're a first-time author, I was wondering just how it feels to have your book put up on torrent sites and um, how, how, you're, how you're choosing to mentally uh, or even procedurally deal with that. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, you know, it's one of the things to be expected in the certification world, and this is one of the kind of the warts on certifications in general is, 
you know, with enough Googling and with enough searching on the net, you can find answers to probably any automated test out there. And that's just, that's just really unfortunate. Um, you know, typically when you meet guys that kind of cheat their way through these tests, you can see through them like glass, but nonetheless, um, you know, people, uh, I like sharing information. Um, I'm, I'm certainly willing to do that. I feel like I've set a fair price for the book. And the thing that I've, that I also believe, and this is actually, I kind of stole this from, from uh, one of Cisco's values is one of the things we say in Cisco is intensely focus on your customers. And I do that at work with my, with my Cisco customers, of course, but I also decided to make that kind of the flagship of my publishing career. Um, I get personal emails from a lot of my customers that they use the feed or they use the uh, email link on LeanPub after they've made us after they bought the book to ask me a question about hey on page three, 2000 uh, I have a question about this command how does it work and I, I make every effort to answer that question within a couple hours um, I've already taken on to trying to mentor some people have asked me to help me mentor them through their study journey I'm, I'm willing to do all that um, for anyone who, who wants to get on board with the book excuse me get on board with the book ask questions about it I think that's extremely important to being successful basically in whatever you do um, you know there's some People I've, I've heard a really great saying is, you know, when you focus on making money, you ultimately fail. But when you focus on your customers, you ultimately make money. So, and even though money making money is not really the goal here, I just, you know, getting the exposure, um, becoming a professional writer, publishing a book, and, and having and, and knowing that I had the spine to go through and write this thing and publish it and take it from cradle to grave, I think brings me a lot more benefit than the money. Regarding the torrent site stuff, you know, I. I'm kind of half-hearted chasing that down um, in terms of infringement, things like that. But I'm not, I don't want to make that the cornerstone of what I do every morning when I wake up and I roll out of bed and I start searching torrent sites. I got better things to do with my life. I got more books I want to write. I got, you know, customers that I want to help get through this test. And I think that's the most important thing to, uh, to stay focused on. Uh, that's great. Bo both of those answers are, um, uh, I would say, um, also textbook lean pub principles, but expressed probably much better than we've ever managed to express them <laughs> ourselves in the past. And, and we like trying to do that. So thanks. Thanks very much for that. That's, I mean, engaging with customers and focusing on the kind of work that you as an author ought to be doing are two things that are, are central to, to uh, what we're trying to deliver for people as well. Um, one specific question I have regarding um, engaging with readers and, and feedback through email and things like that is, um, do you plan to incorporate um, any changes that people suggest to you or corrections that they find into your book and publish new versions? See, that's a very interesting question. I, mean, um, I, I, I want to say yes, but I must say no. And the reason I must say no is, um, as I mentioned, I wrote this book about a week before I joined Cisco. Uh, and anything I do now today would be a Cisco thing. However, I've, um, I'm working very closely with the service provider uh, program manager for the CCIE. She and I talk probably on a weekly basis, and I, I told her, you know, any uh, errata to the book, any um, if people want to see other technologies, maybe something I missed, or or maybe just whatever. If there's any corrections or, or supplements to do, I'm going to try to work with her and just publish official white papers from Cisco that try to cover those gaps while at the same time improving the product um, that, the, that the PM is offering, additional full-scale practice labs and other things that, that Cisco is going to be able to use uh, to help people get through this exam. Because now that I wrote this book outside of Cisco and I can collect that money uh, not related to Cisco, at the same time, the real goal is to continue to keep people interested in this track and assist Cisco in doing that as well. So now I've kind of transitioned from, hey, I published my own book. I'm running that kind of on the side, but I also want to transition to assisting the Cisco Program Management Office, who runs the CCIE Service Provider Program, providing them uh, ideas for labs and, and simply helping them actually build the labs. 
um, as property of Cisco, and it's something that they can either market or give away or, or build in their own study group. So I would definitely encourage uh, any feedback and corrections. Uh, please send those to me. I'm happy to um, consider those kinds of changes um, for any kind of future documents that we publish for Cisco. But the thing that's interesting, though, is the one thing that's a little bit uh, orthogonal to to the way LeanPub works is you know publish early, publish often. Well, for me, it's it's publish once, which is a little bit odd. Ideally, I would go back and fix the problems, but you know, changing a you know, if I change a period to a comma, then I kind of enter a gray zone with with uh, legal stuff, and at this point, it's probably not worth doing. Okay, um, I just have um, one more question, which is uh, we we um, take customer development very seriously at LeanPub, and I, now that I've got you here, um, I wanted to ask if there was any one feature we could add or one problem we could solve for you. Um, what would you ask for? Hmm. I was thinking about this yesterday, um, and this was this kind of goes back to that one return, which again, I don't think one return out of 35 sales is anything to be concerned about. However, the thing I think is interesting, um, the two-click return policy I think is great. I think what would be potentially beneficial is you know two clicks in a, in a mandatory drop-down that maybe just says, hey, pick a reason. You don't have to type comments, but just give me one out of these five reasons. You know, book, uh, you know, I, I overdrafted my account or... Um, the book wasn't what I thought it was, or I bought the book, but I couldn't download it for four hours and I got frustrated and I want a money back. Just any, just a basic reason. No, just, you know, you don't have to justify it. Lean pub isn't going to grill you on it. The author's not going to grill you on it. Just something for, for record. Um, and I think that's valuable because if the number of returns starts to become significant, you know, for example, if I, um, if we see 10 returns in a, in a week and they all have the reason of I couldn't download the book, that might point towards a technical problem. Um, or it might be something like, hey, we all bought this book and it wasn't what we thought we was. Well, maybe those 10 people are part of the same organization and they were briefed by someone, maybe a friend of mine, you know, third party, hey, you guys need to check out this book. It's great. Maybe he misspoke and, and set expectations incorrectly and then we ended up with a bunch of returns. So just having that reason I think would be beneficial. And then, of course, uh, a comments box so that people could uh, expand on that if they want to. That would help authors, I think, just to understand what are the, what are the, what are the big muscle movements um, that, that justified the return. I think there, there could be some value in that. Yeah, thanks for that very much for that suggestion. Um, just for uh, our listeners, um, what Nick is referring to is um, our uh, two-click 100% happiness guarantee return policy lets people easily get returns on LeanPub purchases. Um, and when they do that, they're prompted to optionally leave a comment. Um, and, and we don't ask for feedback in any other way. Um, and we don't require it, um, uh, a comment either. Uh, and that means that sometimes authors like Nick end up with a mis mystery returns um, where someone returns the book without uh, saying why, and that can be um, unsettling. Um, when, and we will—I'll talk to my co-founder Peter about your suggestion because I think it's very good and could really help authors a lot, and maybe even help readers feel like they're participating in a process at a deeper level as well. Um, one comment I would make in, in my experience watching Lean Pub books and authors and returns over the years is that usually, if there is a problem with content. Um, you know, one or two people might return it without commenting, but if there is a real problem, someone will eventually comment. Um, and often what they'll do, be if they, if they understand how LeanPub works, I mean, in your case, this wouldn't be the case because you can't change the book, but they'll, the, instead of returning it, they'll contact the author through our email, the author forum or on Twitter and say, hey, can you fix this problem on, on page five or something like that? Um, and then the author will do it and update the book and let the reader know. And then the reader feels like they're part of the process and it's all a very happy thing. Um, very good. Yeah. Um, uh, is there anything just before we go, is there anything else you wanted to say or, or, uh, issue you'd like to address? 
Um, no, I just want to, uh, I'll just jank uh, Jeremy Philbin. He's a uh, Cisco certified design expert or a CCDE trainer. He's out of Delaware in the United States. He was actually the one who, who introduced me to LeanPub. Um, he and I were chatting uh, on Slack one day and you know, I was having some, some public, this was about a month and a half ago. I was, I was complaining to all my friends. I was having issues with publishing. I was having issues with the book. And I was, you know, after writing this big book, I was right at the finish line, just trying to crawl across and get my book out there. And I was having a lot of different, you know, uh, non-technical kind of personal related issues with, with people and process and things like that. And he says, Hey, you should, you know, check out Lean Club. I never even heard of it. You know, I went to the website, I read through, you know, how does it work? And I read through the FAQ page and I was like, yeah, these guys look pretty cool. Um, and then when, when I was approved to do the book and I was ready to go, I had the book in hand and I said, okay, I've got multiple different self-publishing options here. I kind of weighed those out. I talked to Jeremy again and um, ultimately went with LeanPub uh, for my publishing. Okay. Well, thanks very much, Nick. Good luck with the book. Um, thanks for being on the LeanPub podcast and for being a LeanPub author. All right. My pleasure. Thanks, Len. I appreciate it. Thanks.